Welcome back to Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk, a podcast brought to you by a group of Black Princetonians where we talk about issues impacting our Black and Brown communities. My name is Michelle Jacobs, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Ray Smalls. How are you doing today, Ray? I am great, and I am very excited for this episode, Michelle. Who do we have with us today? Well, we're going to talk about HIV AIDS, which has been something that has uh, been prevalent in our communities from decades, not just years, but for decades. And a former classmate of mine, 1978 uh, graduate, Jesse Milan, who is the president and CEO of Age United, a national policy and grant-making nonprofit. Um, and he was appointed uh, to the, that position uh, back in 2016. Milan himself contracted the AIDS virus at the beginning of the epidemic some 40 years ago and became a full-time advocate after the passing of his partner from the virus in 1985. A lawyer and trusted advisor, Jesse chaired the CDC Human Resources and Services Administration Advisory Committee on HIV and STD Prevention and Treatment, uh, as well as the Black AIDS Institute, Action AIDS, which is now called Action Wellness, and was president of the National Episcopal AIDS Coalition. And in 2007, he was designated a Fulbright Senior Specialist in Global HIV AIDS. Jesse has received numerous honors, including the Public Service Award in 2015 from the Association of Nurses in AIDS Care and the 2020 Alexander Forger Award for HIV Advocacy from the American Bar Association. He received an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Virginia Theological Seminary in 2020 for his many years of service to faith in HIV communities. And Jesse is listed among exceptional HIV leaders by POZ and HIV Plus magazines and received an award from HRSA for leading the national and international fight against HIV disease. Jesse, it's indeed a pleasure and an honor to have you as a guest of Nubian Tigers Talk. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, Princeton is a big part of my life, and uh, this podcast is a great is a great opportunity to to share what my life is all about. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Thank you very much for that. So, uh, Jesse, tell us about AIDS United, your organization, AIDS United, and sure. how you became involved uh, with your organization. Well, I'm the president and CEO of AIDS United. Age United is a national organization focused on ending the HIV epidemic in the United States. And we do that through our three pillars of work, through strategic grant making. We are one of the top 10 grant makers for HIV in the world and one of the top four in the United States. Um, over our history, we've given away about $120 million, including approximately $8 million currently to organizations in most in uh, about 40 different states and territories across the country. And we do that through our capacity building. Our role is to uh, help organizations achieve their mission at ending the HIV epidemic. And so we provide technical assistance and educational and support and knowledge transfer to grassroots organizations all across the US. And policy and advocacy. Uh, 
literally I'm about to speak this week at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, where we will talk about the legislative agenda for ending the HIV epidemic, what's needed in terms of funding and appropriations at the federal and state levels, and the policies that might need to change in different agencies all across our federal and state government. So policy and advocacy, capacity building, and grant strategic grant making are what Age United does. And I've been the uh, blessed to be the CEO for the last six years. And that's a sort of a capstone for my life's work in HIV AIDS over this past 40 years. So Jesse, you know, over the years, there's been a remarkable improvement and growth in the treatment of HIV and AIDS. And I'm wondering from your position, particularly since you're working with the organizations that are out, you know, actually out in the field, do you see um, those scientific advances being played out equally amongst the communities? Like are the communities of color getting the advantage of uh, whatever progress is happening in the field? Well, there are many biomedical advances, particularly in these last 25 years, and even in just the last five or 10 years, there have been significant advances. One of the advances is the uh, ability to uh, have life-saving drugs that prevent you from ever uh, having your immune system become so decimated by the HIV virus that you actually develop AIDS and die from AIDS. And those antiretroviral therapies are increasingly easier to take, fewer in number in terms of the number of pills a person has to take. And so um, those biomedical advances with regard to the pharmaceutical industry and the uh, antiretrovirals that we actually take to stay alive are huge. Um, they are still they are still you know costly in many in many areas, but there are also advances in policies to make it possible for people to get these, these drugs essentially for free. So those are important. If you are on those drugs and you are and you have a what is now known as a undetectable viral load, meaning that your virus is no longer replicating itself and decimating your immune system. And the, and the amount of the virus in your system is now so low that it's almost statistically undetectable. Not only does that mean that you can live a normal lifespan, but it also means that your virus is no longer transmittable. It is untransmittable. That's an undetectable viral load, your virus is untransmittable and you cannot pass it on to someone else. That's a second major biomedical advance. So not only will a person like me who's been living with HIV myself now for 40 years, not only do I have the possibility of living a long and healthy life, but I can have a very fulfilling life because I now know that I cannot transmit this disease to someone else. So those two advances are huge. But in addition, there is a medication called PrEP, or which is short for pre-exposure prophylaxis, that prevents a person who is negative from acquiring the HIV virus. And what's really quite, quite sad is that not enough people are achieving an undetectable viral load who are Black. Not enough Black people are even aware that U equal U exists or are achieving an undetectable viral load. And not enough Black people are aware of PrEP 
or accessing PrEP. And so our challenge is really on all three of those fronts to make sure people have access to care so that they can live a long and healthy life, that people are aware of these advances, including U equal U, and that they not only are aware of PrEP, but have access to PrEP. And that's for both Black men and Black women. So, so why do you think the, the lack of awareness is um, manifesting in the way it is? Well, you know, there's this, you know, systemic racism in, in our public health system, systemic racism in our healthcare system, uh, systemic racism in our governmental systems. We rely on all of those to get us information and to make inform and to turn information into access. And there is a historic problem in, in our country with regard to who gets information, how information is actually packaged so that it's relevant and heard and accessible. And then not only the information, but the but the medications and the treatments and the uh, healthcare access itself. How do we make that possible in a world in which um, Medicaid expansion hasn't happened in most of the states where HIV is still highly prevalent? The largest proportion of people living with HIV are in the South. And yet the South is where we have so many policy and political challenges with regard to access to health care, period, for Black people. Those are the states that have not expanded Medicaid. And Medicaid is, can be a lifeline, particularly for um, underinsured or people who are simply don't have access to private insurance. So, so that raises uh, some interesting questions for me. I was looking at your website and looking at all the initiatives. Uh, that you have for your for your uh, organization, and I saw that there were initiatives both for African American women, which I appreciated because here in D.C., this was a population that was in the beginning excluded from um, getting any kind of HIV/AIDS assistance because the uh, view was that it wasn't for women, uh, particularly Black women who were uh, substance abusers. So, um, and then you have. Um, I, I noticed that you had one for uh, Latinos that included transgendered folks, and then you had one for Latinos that was did not say anything about uh, transgender people, and then you had a separate one for transgender people, and you had one for the South. So <laughs> I said to myself, wow, that's a lot of communities, many of them intersect, but, but tell us a little bit about why you structured those initiatives that way. Well, I'm not going to say that I follow the money, but <laughs> mm. Mm. corporations and foundations that support HIV AIDS sometimes have their own agenda. And we try to marry their agenda with our agenda and come up with solutions that make it possible for us, particularly on our grant making side, to develop programs that resonate with our funders, but also resonate with the needs in the community. So uh, our Southern HIV impact fund has substantially provided support to organizations that are addressing the black and brown community in the south and that and that project uh, which is funded by both corporate and 
and the foundation sectors has been remarkably successful to help us advance both the um, access to care and access to improving policies in the South uh, needed to end the HIV epidemic. And just last week, we received funding from a major funder to begin an additional new uh, initiative for Black women. Um, and we're very excited about that. So I just had a board meeting last Friday, and I shared with them that our priorities will continue to be health equity, to achieve health equity, particularly racial health equity for Black men and Black women and also for the Latinx community and for Puerto Rico. And if because we simply cannot end this epidemic without ending it for black and brown people. I'm um, literally about to say that at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation uh, Summit this week, because 42% of new infections of HIV infections in this country are occurring among black people. 42% of all the and 42% of the people living with HIV in this country are black and brown and in, or are black. Another percentage are, are, are Hispanic. And yet we're only 12% of the population. So the health disparities uh, around HIV AIDS are critical for us to address. But that health disparities has also been translated into COVID-19, as well as now monkeypox. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and, and, and I think the intersection of HIV with so many other social issues and other health issues is one that we are helping to expose because HIV doesn't exist only in a vacuum. Right. It exists in a world of homophobia, of transphobia, but it also exists in a world of poverty, lack of jobs, lack of housing, and general lack of access to healthcare. And on the epidemiological side, HIV also exists in a world where sexually transmitted diseases generally are exploding in this country, where the overdose epidemic is exploding in this country. And those also have racial dimensions as well. And anytime, anytime someone gets gonorrhea or syphilis or herpes, that was an example that is an instance where HIV could have been transmitted. Right. Every time someone shoots a needle or goes into overdose and does something they shouldn't be doing, that's an opportunity where HIV could be transmitted. So we live in this intersectional world, both in terms of social issues and health issues. That's intersections where HIV lives. Mm. Uh, you know, um, Jesse, you were talking about racial equity uh, within the health community, especially for our people. But if our people are hesitant to say that they are infected and have the disease, how do we overcome that? I mean, you've been living with it for 40 plus years. Have you seen, um, you know, changes in our communities regarding HIV AIDS and how we address it or how we even acknowledge it? And then from there, the willingness to learn more about it and to have it treated properly. I think after 40 years of this epidemic, one of the ways that we can uh, address the stigma of HIV is to stop relying on people living with HIV to address the stigma of HIV. Okay, after 40 years, I'm tired. 
right? I'm tired. But after 40 years, I'm tired of, of hiding the fact that I have HIV when I get to the dinner table and all we want to talk about is aunt so-and-so and her diabetes or uncle so-and-so and his cardiovascular disease, right? Why can't I talk about HIV in that, in that instance? We know that there are Black people who are family members and kin and friends of people who live with HIV. How do we empower them to say that publicly, that they understand and care about people with HIV? I'm relying on those who are affiliated with me on a familial level and a family level on a friend level to be able to say at 2022, I am concerned about HIV. And you know what? If you hear that from someone who's not living with HIV, that's where the stigma goes, starts to break down because people living with HIV have been brave in so many ways. We need you to be brave. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. In acknowledging right. it. And right. not, not just acknowledging it, but to say it, mm -hmm. yeah. to live yeah, it and to show it. Yeah. You know, it would be remarkable if I had a, a cousin to say to me, so... I just saw, heard this thing about you equal you. Is that really true? Wow, that would be remarkable. You know, I was sitting in my living, my my mother's living room, and my two cousins, two cousins of mine, said, "You know, we were sitting in, sitting around, and we thought, let's just Google somebody. Let's Google cousin Jay." And they were like, "Whoa, we didn't know all that." And I uh -huh. said, "Well, now you do." <laughs> Mm. And you know what? And now it can be part of the open conversation at the dinner table, at the family reunion, when in the pews, in the uh, at the, the the fish fry outside the church. It can be, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? Boy, that would be empowering. That's where the stigma starts to break down. Mm. That's powerful. That's powerful. Yeah, we're going to do our part. We're going to try to add a little drop in the water to help with that. Well, and plus, you know, whether it's the deltas or the links, whether it's the kappas or the alphas, they can also say black men get tested for prostate cancer, HIV, mm -hmm. on and on and on. Just add it to the list. In fact, when it's added to the list of things to think about, that stigma continues to go down. Some might say, well, wait a minute, why HIV? And then you can have a conversation. Well, do you actually know who you had sex with? You don't know all that. Men and women can transfer this, can right, trans right. Can transmit right. this disease. Right, right. right. And, if you, and as we send off our young people to college, I know that somebody's having conversations with their daughters about sexual health. But they should be also including in that conversation about sexually transmitted diseases mm. and access to PrEP, just like you're having a conversations about access to birth control. Excellent. That's an excellent point. And that would be for not only our young ladies going to college, but especially for our young men right. as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great point. So, um, well, but. In our class of seven, in our, I'm in class of 78, in the cohort of people listening tonight. 78. 
78, that's right. <laughs> we're now we're now parents and grandparents. Right. And it's okay for us to ask this question because you know what? That 18 or 17 year old, they might not want to hear it from their parents, but they might want to hear it, but but they would be shocked to hear it from us. And we're the cohort of people who have lived through all 40 years. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And we've lived through all 40 years of the social change around HIV, because frankly, we wouldn't have same sex marriage if it wasn't for HIV. Mm. Because if you can sit on the front row pew at a funeral for your partner, why couldn't you stand in front of the altar and get married to your partner. Right. We've seen that social change. It's part of who we are in our classes. And we can be the ones who help shape the dialogue because we've lived it and seen it. So, so Jesse, we have a question coming up in a little bit on the issue of um, gay marriage and what's happening today and how that's going to impact um, the work that you do. But before we get there, um, since you mentioned the intersectionality, tell us a little bit about how your work was impacted by the COVID uh, pandemic and what that meant for people who had AIDS or were HIV positive. Well, organizationally, AIDS United, I, I use the uh, lessons learned from the pandemic, the experiences we were having to transform my organization to a primarily virtual organization. And by doing that, I discovered I was that we could hire the best people from wherever they were in the country because that we're not doing direct service. We do do services to the community, but boy, many of those services like knowledge transfer can be easily done virtually. So today, I don't have to have all of my, our staff headquartered in Washington. I now have staff in 19 states. It's really, I'm hiring the best person for wherever they are. And, and with technology, we're trying to be on the cutting edge of where organizations and businesses are going. But in terms of the community's response, too many of our clinics and our um, and our our grassroots organizations really struggled with the change with the changes during COVID. So we created an opportunity to fund um, improvements in telehealth access. Uh, we gave we gave grants to organizations to help um, their clients obtain laptops and iPads so that they and uh, and cell phones so that they could communicate with their providers to for uh, virtual support groups for people living with HIV as well and that has really been quite transformative i don't think we're going to go back to exclusively in person medical appointments there will be many way times when it is more efficient for a person to be able to do a telehealth. So for example, if you're a person who's working in a, in a job where you've got to be there from nine to five, maybe you're working as a short order cook, maybe you're working in a gas station or something, you really have to do that. But you can have a half hour break 
to go get on your telemedicine appointment. And you know what? Sometimes these telemedicine appointments really do happen on time. You're, you're not sitting in a waiting room for two hours, right? <laughs> And so if you're in a, if you have a, a job that doesn't give you that kind of flexibility to like go get in the car or get on the bus and go all the way downtown, sit in a waiting room and all that, we have we've blown all that away with access, greater access to telemedicine. And if your med and if your lab results are right there in front of the doctor, you can actually see on the screen how you're doing. So I think we I think COVID has actually helped us in some way, but it's also been very painful on our providers to make the adjustment and uh, and and many of our clinical providers are now making uh, strong adjustments because COVID has been so hard on the on our health professional staff. You know, Jesse, you teed us right up for our next uh, questions, which we're going to kind of combine two of those uh, near the end of the of our discussion. And for you, what happened to the communities that you served during the uh, the COVID pandemic? And in your in your well, time, the communities that his providers. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, and in your time, do you see any similarities between the government's initial response to HIV/AIDS and its approach to this onset of uh, monkeypox right now? Oh, oh, absolutely. We are all over the monkeypox issue right now. We've already had three major webinars in just the last six weeks around COVID. We're addressing it with Congress. Um, I'm sorry, around monkeypox, and we're addressing it with Congress because it's an urgent issue. And my goodness, the number, the percentage of people who are who have been diagnosed with monkeypox, a disproportionate share are African-American, particularly Black gay men. So we have a real challenge there. Uh, what are the similarities? The similarities are the stigma of the disease. You know, in that first year of COVID, my goodness, who had it? Who had it? Oh my gosh, how'd they get it? What are we gonna do? Are we gonna isolate them? All those conversations are exactly what we talked about 40 years ago with the beginning of the HIV. The epidemic. Were we willing to address the health disparities? The racial health disparities were too often ignored with HIV, and we and it took us a long time to reveal the racial health disparities of COVID because we weren't seeing any black people on TV standing next to Donald Trump. <laughs> you weren't shocked at that, were you? <laughs> Well, the one who did stand next to him died. Right. <laughs> so, right. Exactly. So we, our public health messaging from the top was stilted from the very beginning mm -hmm. with regard to COVID. And that's not unlike what, what happened with HIV. It was, it was until Maggie Johnson, which was what, 12, 14 years into the epidemic that we thought, oh, really? <laughs> Some people were like, oh, really? Black people are getting HIV? So... And monkeypox is, of course, a, yet another example. It's yet another example. So, our, so that's one of our challenges, of course, at Age United and with our partners is to constantly push the government for the messages necessary that, are, that can be heard and that are relevant to the populations most at risk. 
Michelle, if I could just ask one follow-up. Sure, um, sure, sure. So the, the, and I think in terms of this uh, communities being stigmatized, the government also used HIV AIDS in the, in the 80s to exclude the Haitian people that were coming over, over here. Has that, have you seen, and, and, and we also saw that with COVID, you know, that Asian Americans and Asians were, you know, were stigmatized because of that by- And the Haitians who had made it through South America were trying to come see, people don't talk about the Haitians that were detained at the border. Yes. But there yes. were a lot of black people, Africans and Haitians detained right. at the border. But how, how have you been able to incorporate what it is that your uh, organization does and service that community, that very, very underserved community? Are we talking about the immigrant community, the Haitian community? Um, I think we have, well, certainly at Age United, we are very much aware of the various segments of our general American population that require some specific uh, strategies to make sure that their public that the public health message around prevention or access to care is heard and understood by them and that our government understands that community well enough to make sure that our response reaches them so if you're a black transgender woman how do you get the information that's relevant to you if you're a heterosexual black man who's just been released from prison, how do you make sure, how do we make sure that the health information he needs is heard and relevant to him? If you're a person who has been in the overdose community, how do we make sure the message is relevant to him or her. And we are now becoming more aware that the overdose community is also oversubscribed with people who are African-American. But that's not something we talk about. How do we make sure that we, that our public health strategies reach the people they, that we most need, that are most at risk? And how does our government make sure it's responding by making sure that we have the resources available to the people who need them the most. And that's what our policy challenge is all about. If you're in Mississippi or Alabama, you may be worried about the flood, but you know, when the flood is over, there's still a question, where are you gonna go get access to care if you don't have Medicaid, right? What are you going to do if that, if the, um, if the, if there is no major teaching hospital near you to provide state-of-the-art care, if you don't have access to a telephone or tele or to Wi-Fi, how can you even be able to use a telemedicine option? The structural racism in that's embedded in so much of our communities, and and the lack of access to to information and care. Our structures that are, are just simply structures that we have to continue to fight and build up. And that's why this upcoming election is so important. That's why every election is important because we actually have allies who are working hard to, to build what, what is needed and to break down what is wrong. But we need to be the ones who also push the button 
in the voting booth, the ones who are shouting from the streets and the ones who are getting elected to make the change from the inside. And that's why I'm so thrilled about this podcast because the um, our black and black uh, and brown brothers and sisters from Princeton have the influence to do exactly that. So, so let me let me follow that up because um, you know the trans community suffers from so many uh, different problems: being unhoused, police brutality, uh, uh, murder. Murder, yes. Uh, uh, Self-medication to deal with trauma. Um, and, and I'm wondering, that, that seems to me it would be a very difficult community to do, uh, to get good communication out to. So what, what have you, what, what's your experience with that? Is that, um, yeah, how's that working? I think for, for every community, there are, there are thought leaders in their community there are key opinion leaders there are leaders in, in every community sometimes it's best to start with those who are recognized as leaders and say leader help us understand your community leader help us help us by being the conduit to your community Nothing for us without us is a credo that has been the case for people living with HIV since almost the beginning of the epidemic. Nothing for us without us. Inviting leaders to the table to make sure that when strategies are developed, when funding decisions are made, when programs and policies are created, that we're actually at the table. That's not any different for Black gay men than it is for a Black transgender woman. You cannot, you dare not design something to help them without them being there to help decide what is needed for the help that they need. <laughs> Nothing for us without us. I like that. I like that. So so we're going to jump right to um, a question that's connected to this election stuff. But uh, across the country, particularly in the South and the Midwest, uh, we're seeing now attempts to legislate against uh, transgender people, against any kind of discussion about non-gender conforming, anything, healthcare, whatever. Uh, and I, I saw recently that as a result of one of the abortion bans, they're trying to restrict, or they want to next try to restrict a drug that helps people who have HIV AIDS. So can you speak to that issue? What's happening there? The federal district court in Texas recently ruled in, um, in favor of a business owner who claimed that having his uh, Affordable Care Act insurance policy mandate that PrEP be made available was against his religious conviction. How crazy is that? Because <laughs> he claimed that PrEP was encouraging same-sex sexual behavior and sexual behavior among people outside of marriage. So I think this that case, which uh, which is fairly new, and it's and that decision has just come down the last few weeks, will go up for a 
lots of appeals yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh and we'll probably be, have some uh, resolution in the future but for right now it's an alarming decision that a court would say that the religious convictions of a business might outweigh a larger public health interest see i was going to say well there goes anyone that wants to sell condoms in texas right <laughs> well That's no true. today and today Today's news in today's news in Utah because of their new bill, the teachers received a memo that they cannot even talk about contraceptives mm. to their students because of the abortion bill. Now, how crazy is that? It is very crazy, but I am convinced that we have to continually prove that we are actually the majority. We are the majority. We, uh, too often, I think we find ourselves on the defensive as opposed to the offensive. Yep. But we were only proved that we're, we're the majority in the voting booths where we actually are the majority. Right. And, right. And, and especially in a midterm election, we cannot be afraid to empower our, our people to get out and vote or else we will seem that that we have become the silent minority and we're letting them trounce all over us. Because even when a court decision like that happens, ultimately a legislature can overturn it. We already know that that's possible, but it won't happen if the legislatures are made up of people who are not us. That's so true. And you know what, Jesse? Our, our time, we, Ray and I are always astounded when the time goes by and we're like, but we have a million other things to think about. <laughs> but we never let a guest leave the show uh, without asking if there's just one thing that you want our listeners to take away. And our listeners are not just Black and Brown Princetonians. Yes, I have yes. To tell you, we have listeners. We may not have thousands of listeners, but we have listeners across the world. <laughs> and that is literally a fact. Mm -hmm. um, so what's the thing, you know, if they don't remember anything you say, what, what's the one thing that they have to take away from the show? That the HIV crisis is not over. There are 1.2 million people living with HIV in the United States. And the CDC tells us there are another 1.2 million who are highly vulnerable to acquiring HIV. And those people, while they may be substantially black and brown, they are people that we all know. It's time to break the silence around HIV and recognize that if we don't do something, this disease will continue to exist and it will primarily impact black and brown people. It's time to make a change. Great final words. Jesse, thank you so much. And Jesse, thank you. This is very near and dear to me really, as well. Really, because, very good. Yeah. And we want our community to stop being afraid to talk about the sensitive things, AIDS, HIV, domestic violence, mm -hmm. uh, mental health in our community. We, we want them to talk about these issues so that we can come to some kind of solution, solutions for how we can move forward as a healthy community. And so thank you so much um, 
for being on the show and being willing to talk with us about this very important issue. And for your expertise. Uh, well, thank you. And thank you for making it possible for me to bring this message. Michelle, thank you so much. It's great to meet you. Raymond, 78. 78. <laughs> 78 is great. <laughs> Michelle, that, uh, Jesse's message was so important for our listeners to hear. And I, 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 like many of us, we've lost loved ones and very dear friends to this, this virus, you know, way back in the 80s, 90s and on up until today. So I, I thought that um, all the information that Jesse um, was able to convey to us was especially and really, really needed um, for, our, for our listening audience. Yes, and let's pick up the message and amplify it. Don't be afraid to talk about AIDS. Talk about it like you talk, like he said, like you talk about your uncle's cardiac problems. Right. It's part of our community and we need to address it and recognize it as such and not be afraid to talk about it. If you enjoyed what you heard today, visit our website, NubianTigersPodcast.com. In addition to the podcast, we also post a resource page for each subject to provide additional sources of information. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at NubianTigers, written as one word. We're also on YouTube on the Nubian Tigers podcast channel. Our podcast is hosted by Anchor FM, but if you have a favorite podcast app, we're probably on it. Just look for Nubian Tigers Talk. Looking forward to sharing some knowledge with you next time. Wake up, wake up, wake up.